0: Welcome everyone to News of the Money World. I am Darcy Ungaro. You are Rupert Carlyon. How are you, Rupert? I'm very well. Glad to be back. Same. It's good stuff. It's really good stuff.
1: The the, the break's been far too long and there's just been way too much happening. So I've had to find real people to talk to. Yeah, I'm sorry
0: about that. That happens. We'll have to deal with that, eh? And heaven forbid you end up talking to your children, right? So we can't have that.
1: (laughs) No, exactly. (laughs)
0: Um, there's been a lot happening. It's almost like all the news events kind of waited until we weren't talking about it so that they could really get well misbehaved, you know? And so let's, let's kind of pick up where we left off and start with the election. And under the election, we've got a few things that we should talk about. You've been fairly vocal around this topic of house prices and the new government. So do you want to unpack just what effect the national party getting in will have on house prices?
1: Well, I think there's a couple of things, right? So, um, first, I do firmly believe that uh, the national government will will help house prices and will probably drive house prices higher uh, for three reasons. One is they are uh, the interest deductibility coming off the landlords. I mean, that's it's a big cost and that will make a difference for the, the affordability of landlords to buy houses. Don't saying that. There was a dumb decision in the first place, right? It's just a standard business yeah, expense, that, so it never should yeah. have happened. Um, I do firmly believe that the foreign buyers, allowing foreign buyers to kind of buy, that's going to create more demand. We are going to see people coming into this market that otherwise would not have been here. Um, And so increased demand when we're short on supply, that has to push up prices. Mm. And the third thing is I think there's just going to be a little bit of a a general optimism, how long that lasts for. Um, but there is there is almost definitely going to be a, a bit of an optimism, which kind of is people have been wanting change for such a long time, that's going to drive prices further higher as well. And actually one of the other things that I started to see a little bit talked about is the change to the planning rules. Um, National have said that they're going to walk away from the intensification and the density rules that they agreed to last year. Um, and, I, and I do have to believe that that will slow down the development of new housing uh, because it's going to take councils a lot longer to build infrastructure for greenfields. And actually, we know on a per square meter basis, um, it's about 30% cheaper to buy, to build intense high-density housing than it is to build kind of freestanding housing as well. So there's a few reasons why I'm pretty happy to be a homeowner right now.
0: Okay, That's good. What do you think about the change to the bright line test rules then? Because there's obviously some speculation that that could be quite bullish for property as well. If they do bring it back down to two years from 10 um, in my mind though, I would think, well, I wouldn't say that would necessarily be increasing pressure. That might actually increase pressure on the sell side, especially in a high interest yeah. rate environment. But what do you think?
1: So I've, I've spoken to a few people that, um that would be keen to get out of their properties if, if it weren't for the bright line test. So I think you're probably right. And if anything, it drives a little bit of the behavior of um and adding supply into the mm. market but i think it's at the end of the day i think we're talking very very small biscuits around the edges mm. here um what do we know we know most landlords you don't buy a house for the rental income the two percent yield um, most of them are negatively geared you're buying it for capital gains and so i think yeah i, I don't see it changing a huge amount okay.
0: subject to the next parts of what we talk about right so the next The next thing that we kind of have to unfold, because it is like, I think it's probably the thing that we're confronted with almost every day, and that's inflation. And inflation has tipped down, or the rate of increase, kind of like the rate of acceleration for all you physics buffs, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're slowing down. It just means that the prices aren't rising as fast, 5.6%. So what are your thoughts there?
1: So look, I think um, think the, the news that we're seeing on inflation is really great and we are starting to see the slowdown. Unfortunately, though, it's we, we probably shouldn't start celebrating yet, as we've seen from the US, from Europe, getting ourselves from seven to five to, to even to yeah. four. That was always the easy part, getting ourselves from four back to two. That's the bit that everyone's kind of sitting there going, oh, fuck, how long is that going to take? We're not quite sure of and, and where that's going, yeah. right? And so even under the current world, particularly where we're looking at with kind of oil prices, kind of, Up to 85 and potentially higher if we don't get some sense of normality in the middle east that is kind of it is going to push up uh, i think going to be hard to get ourselves down to that two percent then we also look at some of these other things right so high house prices that is stimulatory to the economy no question on it right people feel richer people will borrow um and i think that's kind of that means there will be more money going into things um and then the second big one which we can't forget about is the tax. Um, I mean, National have proposed tax cuts to a few lucky families, um, and though, but interestingly, that's kind of going to add up to about zero point eight percent of GDP. Yeah. And so we kind of that but fundamentally, right? That and they're not fully funded tax cuts, and so therefore that has to be stimulatory to the economy. So I kind of go on balance, it's it's kind of hard to see us coming down anytime yeah. soon. And if anything, I see us in a world where kind of inflation probably remains stickier for longer, which means interest rates stay high yeah, for longer.
0: But that, and that's not a uniform or I guess that's not a homogenous thing, right? Like when we think interest rates, we kind of just think interest rates are just it's just one thing, but it's a curve. And we've seen a, yeah. a negative yield curve where it's more expensive on the short end. In other words, for short periods of time, the interest rate will be higher and you'll be actually getting a discount for longer-term interest rates, which is really weird. Yeah. And that usually is a is a recession indicator, or I guess it, it shows that an, a recession is coming, and it really only materializes when you see it inverting. And I've been wondering how this would play out, but now I kind of understand it a little bit with war and I guess the globalized problem of inflation, where it might not be so that the OCR which affects floating interest rates all the way up to 12 to 18 months, really. It might not be that that comes down. It might be that the longer term fixed rates go up. So we will have a positive yield curve after all, but only because the longer end is getting higher. Do you agree with that?
1: Yeah, look, the the longer end is definitely getting higher. Um, We've seen that in the the US, the the yield curve is flattening quite a lot. Because where people are now going, hold on a sec, we're not sure there will be a recession. Um, Because remember, as I'm pricing out my 10-year credit, I'm kind of going every year I'm expecting what the interest rate is going to be the whole way through. So if I expect a recession next year and then interest rates to drop from five and a half back to two, then that kind of drives it. But I think now increasingly what everyone's starting to say is saying, maybe we were wrong on this recession. Maybe a soft landing is a possibility, um, and that's why we're seeing – back-end rates kind of continue to rise because the the, the projected time frame of dropping interest rates continues mm. to fall and that's also why here in the new zealand market over the last even the last three days we've seen two banks come out and um increase their mortgage rates because their long-term rates are moving higher for yeah. them it's a, it's a
0: funny thing hey eh? it's like when when you, when you go on those rides where like these thrill rides where y- you know you drop down like these sudden death sort of drop, drop rides. And there's like a little bit of a shudder and it's like, oh, maybe it's gonna be a soft landing after all, it's gonna be a nice gentle descent back to earth. And then right when you don't expect it is when it happens. And everything to do with the market always amuses me because it always does stuff that surprises us. Nothing can ever be expected. And that's just human behavior. And-
1: Well, that's Bloomberg's point. So Bloomberg did a great article either last week or the week before talking about um, the narrative around soft yeah. landing. Is identical to the narrative that we had in 2007. Hmm. Um, because they say the moment that everyone starts talking about a soft landing, that's when we start need to worry about the hard landing. <laughs> and here we go. And I'm a little bit of a pessimist on, on a lot of things. But the truth is, the only way history has shown the only real way that you can beat inflation is recession. Yeah. You've got to take a whole lot of demand out of the economy. And that's why I kind of go, Yeah, on one hand, a recession is hard because people lose their jobs, a recession is ugly. Um, It's really hard on people and businesses. But I'd say we we have kind of two options here, right? We can either continue going down this path of trying to fight the recession and kind of doing just enough, but we got low growth, high inflation. We might be there for four or five years. Or alternatively, we go hard, we tip it into recession. and then we kind of six, 12 months of pain, and then we accelerate back out into the new cycle. Uh, we got to do something to kickstart the next cycle. Yeah,
0: I, I think the Goldilocks zone is not the place. You know, this isn't the time for the Goldilocks zone um, because it needs to be just rip it off, right? Get on with it. Um,
1: the band-aid's got yeah. to go.
0: Okay, so like thinking about KiwiSaver now, and again, we're, we're kind of still around this new, new Zealand election piece. And I guess most people, when they're investing through KiwiSaver, they won't have it entirely invested in new zealand so the election will have some sort of result but i guess in terms of what influences kiwi saver performance at the moment a lot of that is probably going to become uh, dictated to by the global inflation story which is going to yep. be heavily influenced by the war story in my view anyway um but what what are your thoughts like do you think the election does have an impact on on kiwi saver performance here
1: no okay. not at all um at the end of the day most people have 20 to 30 percent of their kiwi saver invested in new zealand the remainder offshore the offshore dryer and even the new zealand market so even that 20 30 percent is largely driven by what happens yeah. offshore rather than what happens here the, the two key things that are going to drive your kiwi saver right now one is um what's happening with interest rates in the us and we've kind of seen as interest rates are, are kind of the longer interest rates have risen over the last three or four days we've seen equity markets fall pretty sharply. They've kind of down about 5% in the Mm. last week um, as a result of that. Um, And then of course, we've got to watch what's happening in the Middle East with Israel Gaza as well, because that could be a major um, challenge to the global economy. And to break
0: that down just a little bit, so just thinking about the war in particular, so let's say the the US government needs to borrow a lot of money, right? Like they already do have to borrow a lot of money, but funding two wars now is gonna be next level. So presumably that pushes up the pushes up the interest rates and the bond prices go down. So there's a financial stability consideration there. And then there's a higher interest rate piece as well. So why would you want to put your money in risky equities when you have this, I have to use my air quotes again, risk-free rate of return with um, U.S. Treasuries, right? So is that kind of like the mechanism by which this all works?
1: Yeah, it, it kind of is, right? And I think that's the, that's the issue at the moment. I mean, on one hand, so you, you're, the, you're, the theory that you have said is 100% yeah. correct. The problem is what we've seen is as the US government continues to borrow and the, their borrowing demands are outlandish, I mean, they're running 10% GDP deficit yeah. at the moment, people still keep on giving yeah. them the money um, and they don't have any problem borrowing. And so we haven't seen... The, the risk premium or even the supply, or I guess, demand premium, liquidity premium, sorry, um, grow, which is surprising a lot of people, right? And the kind of as they keep on signing off and as they go, it just keeps on kind of working through. At the end of the day, though, right, $100 billion, which is what Biden has asked for, for, um, for uh, the U.S. economy, for yep. Ukraine and Israel, yeah, it's and nothing. Sure. I mean, the U.S. economy, it's kind of a $20 trillion economy. Um, they're just, yeah, it's, it's kind of, it's a rounding error in terms of the total spending in the U.S. So economy. Far. So yeah. it's, it's not much. It's the, the monetary side is not big. It's probably more the geopolitical right. side of it where you go, can the defense industry sustain two sure. wars?
0: And then, then there's the oil piece as well. Which is great.
1: well, yeah, and that's the big risk on that whole region, and, and kind of one of the big things, right? And that's the reason why you have two US aircraft carriers in the Middle mm. East right now, um, is to make sure that Iran doesn't do anything yeah. funny, uh, and disrupt the supply yeah. of oil. Like, the, you've got the Strait of Hamas, well, I probably said that wrong, sorry, but that area, which is a very narrow piece of water, where I think which kind of uh, on the border of Iran, 40% of the world's oil supply goes through that narrow piece of water. Um, that is why the US military is there to protect that piece of water from anything that the Iranians yeah. might do. And
0: depending on who you believe, maybe they're there to help get their hostages out or other things, right? Um, there, there's all sorts of conjecture around yep. that. And that's what's so horrible about war is that you don't really know what the whole story is. So it's like, oh. you know, how do you figure this out? But I guess as as investors here in New Zealand, it's really easy to capitulate i know i've had a few calls this week from people worrying quite a bit about what this means and i think it's it's probably almost it's just as hard to be definitive that the the scariness out there in the world means things go bad with performance and portfolios as it is the opposite like you can't i know these things are correlated and there's avenues by which inflation drives up things and changes the markets a little bit but it's really hard to actually say that, hey, when things are scary, you should do X. You know what I mean? It's still somewhat random, isn't it?
1: Oh, massive. And, oh, well, look, at the start of this year, where every single market strategist and every single market person in the world said the recession was going to come. Sorry, not every single one. It's 90%, 95%. Um, and most people had a forecast of the S&P dropping yeah. this year. Yeah, here we are. Markets are up 15%. I mean, people struggle to believe me when I say the average Q KiwiSaver member is up 15%, 20% yeah. this year. Um, and it's kind of like, yeah, it's that's the bit that I yeah. keep on telling everyone. Over the last four years, what we, we've seen time in, time out, every time you think you know what's about to happen next, every time you make a call based on kind of some of the macro news, you get proven that's wrong. That's
0: right. Every time you try and outsmart the market, you're going to get your face ripped off. Someone told me that once. It's always true, isn't it? Cool. Well, let's let's move on a little bit if we can. And there's been a lot happening in other parts of the world and in other parts of our portfolio if we do allocate in this space. So specifically digital assets and um, crypto broadly, um, Bitcoin specifically is what, you can access. I know with your QB Saver provider provides access to Bitcoin. I'm, I'm down with Bitcoin as I am. A lot of asset classes, every tool has a purpose and a portfolio is my view. Um, there's been a, a lot more happening here with Grayscale. So Grayscale, they have had a way that you could buy into Bitcoin without holding it directly for quite some time through a trust structure. They've applied to the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, um correct me if any of this r- is wrong i'm just reading my notes here
1: yeah
0: and um and they were knocked back and so it led to a bit of what they want to do is they want to apply uh, to convert their trust into a spot bta sorry a spot etf there's a whole bunch of jargon in there exchange traded fund do you want to talk me through just the the history lesson there and um where we're at with the battle
1: yeah so the grayscale fund is massive right it's like a 40 million mm. dollar fund it was the first retail mutual fund in the US to, to allow people to go into Bitcoin. Um, and so very, very successful. For the last three or four years, they've been desperately trying to turn it into an exchange-traded fund. And one of the issues that they have, the reason they were so desperate to do this is the, tr- the funds, when things are really good, the fund trades yeah. at a massive premium to the net asset value, right? And so in a simplistic terms, what that means, that I've got the fund has $100 worth of Bitcoin in it, when Bitcoin prices are rising and everyone wants in, it trades at like $105. And then when things are really bad, so like over the last couple of years, it'll trade at kind of a 20% discount. So you go into the scale Fund and you can spend $80 um, to buy $100 worth of Bitcoin. Under an ETF, the market maker structure means that there is always someone in the background which will normalize out those two things. So technically an ETF will always trade um, and it will be delisted if it doesn't, but because so it will always trade within kind of half a percent or one percent of the underlying mm. net asset value. So, under the ETF structure, two things happen. One is you get rid of that premium discount issue because it kind of you've got market makers constantly buying and selling to, to, mm. to sort that out. And then the second thing that you get is you open up the pool of investors that are able to kind of invest in this instrument, right? And well, over time the SEC is consistent Securities and Exchange Commission in the US has consistently said no way we don't believe that this market is liquid enough and we think this market is right for disruption which is why we are not going to approve um as a spot ETF and so they've been fighting this for for many 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 years they've had applications from Fidelity BlackRock uh Invesco Uh, Grayscale, so many things have come across their desk and every single one, they kind of knocked back. Grayscale got sick of this and so took them to court um, and said, look, we don't believe you've got the legal right to do that. We think you do need to assess this. We think Mm. you need to look at it properly. And the courts have agreed with them. Um, And so now they will have to have a proper look at it. Um, They will go through it. And so this has all happened in the last couple of weeks. At the same time, you've had BlackRock file all the paperwork needed for their own ETF, Bitcoin ETF. They've also gone and registered the ETF. They've set up clearing for the ETF. They've done everything necessary. That means the moment that an SEC kind of filing comes, within days, they can just go, bang, we're good, and we can get started in this. Um, And I think... And also there have been rumors in the market that that BlackRock have already started buying Bitcoin to seed into their fund. Um, And so I think everyone's going, okay, this is real this time. This is going to drive a whole lot more demand into this product. A lot of the people doing like what we're doing right now, there'll be a lot more institutions Mm -hmm. getting into it. There'll be a lot more private investors getting into it. Um, I mean, we were talking about it yesterday in the office. Some of my colleagues sitting there going, fuck, I want to do Bitcoin, I want to do it, I just can't trust yeah. myself with the wallet. Uh, the wallet is still a massive impediment yeah, to it. a lot of people, and this structure removes yeah. that impediment. And so I think there's a lot of excitement that if this gets across the ground, then this will drive the next kind of ser- series of adoption and investment in this space, which, um, which kind of gets us one step further to crypto becoming mm. a mainstream yeah. asset class.
0: Which is cool. And, and you've, you've labeled those some of the reasons why I think it, it will be bullish or it will be quite uh, good news for Bitcoin as an asset price. Because it just means that there's almost like an infinite supply of fiat money or just regular dollars yep. that is being introduced really efficiently to the finite supply of Bitcoin. So it's like that irresistible force and immovable object debate that I'm sure you have in your head occasionally when you can't sleep. And, and that, that, that only nice. only really points to an upward trajectory in price. And I think that from an advisor perspective, when, it, when I'm talking to people about Bitcoin, it Sadly, it's usually when the market is just on a tear and things are going up. And when things aren't, people are just like, no, I'd rather wait for the price to triple before I buy in, which is crazy, but that's how people think. But even then, even when people want to do it, they don't for the simple reason that it's the wallet issue. They don't want to have to fiddle around with seed phrases and learn the technology. And then they don't want to trust themselves because if they make a mistake, they've heard all the horror stories. So this basically solves that problem. Obviously you lose that use of Bitcoin as a monetary asset, as a a medium of exchange, you lose that with an ETF. But I I don't think the majority of investors are actually participating in Bitcoin for that reason. They're doing it for a fiat currency game,
1: right? Yeah. And I think the big thing you've got to also remember around the supply and demand, kind of we talked about supply and demand for housing. Truth is, the crypto market yeah. is tiny. I mean, the crypto market in its totality is somewhere between one to one and a half trillion dollars. Let's put that in perspective, right? Apple's worth $3 trillion. Um, and in that crypto market, the majority of it's Bitcoin. Where they build, kind of People talk about the fact that two-thirds of Bitcoin is tied up in a small number of people as well. So there is, yeah, that, that's why this thing, when it does go, it will go far because there just yeah. isn't enough supply. Yeah,
0: exactly. And would you say, like, in terms of the typical portfolio that you see that who, um, sorry, the typical portfolio with Cura who have allocated towards a certain amount into Bitcoin, would you suggest that if they've had good performance this year, it's mostly due to having a little bit of Bitcoin? Because we're talking about something that's basically doubled in value this year. It's gone up by, like, I don't know. 20% in the last seven days or so. So is that kind of the main driver into why a lot of the funds that you guys do is done well?
1: i I okay. no, short answer. Um, the truth is that the core equity markets have done really well this year. So a, we were looking at this last week on a one year basis, kind of the average kind of, not the average, but the average kind of equity holder for us has done up about right. 15, 20% um so that's a a really good number Mm. on its own right um those and i think that's the story that the media don't talk about but equity markets offshore have done really really well and that's where our members have benefited those that have done super well and those that Mm. are put into crypto um i mean our crypto fund is up Mm. 70 80 percent um yet a um but it's a small number um, but, it, but it has kind of, we do have people that are hitting 20, 25% returns mm-hmm. because of that. But yeah, that's it's the, I think the big misnomer at the moment is the equity markets have done really well. So our core funds have okay. done really well. Okay, well. that's interesting. Okay.
0: Yeah. Before we move on from crypto in general, FTX just giving us a, a bit of a lowdown on that. And I kind of mm-hmm. caught up with the news last night. It feels kind of like everybody's turning on old poor old SBF. Um, feels like maybe he was a bit of a dodgy guy after all. Who knew? Uh, but do you want to give us the lowdown on, on where we're at with San Francisco Freed and
1: And it's awesome, right, when you think about the parallels. So on one hand, we've got a New York courtroom that all of the issues with crypto <laughs> and the crypto bros and how they ran their business is happening. On the other side of New York City, we've got, kind of BlackRock and Fidelity fighting it out over who can be first in terms of the ETFs. And I just find it amazing where you've got those two stories coming together, right? A lot of people in the crypto world were very nervous about FTX trial and what it would expose in terms of um, some of the issues. But actually it's been great because we're actually seeing a a very different story and a very different side of that. But back to kind of um, what's been happening. Look, it seems as though he just ran that thing like an absolute fiefdom which is fine. That's kind of what a lot of kind of people like that do. He had no, he kind of was telling people to put in um, exits to make sure that Alameda was able to do whatever it wants, taking client funds, unlimited credit limits. It's going to be really hard to see how he walks away from this. Um, at the end of the day, what he told people, what he told investors is, is clearly a long way from, yeah. from what was happening. Um, and it's kind of the his CTO who testified last week has made that very, very, very clear. Um, And I think we, and with Caroline um, Allison, we've seen that as well. So clearly a lot of it is down to his decisions and some of the things that he did. The flip side is um, it's going to be interesting to see. What is really interesting though, which came out in the last couple of days, is um, there are three or four people vying to buy FTX as a business. So I think it's been, it's kind of, Almost, that's why I say there's this amazing paradox in the industry happening going, right? In October, November last year, FTX was the death of crypto, whereas actually we've already, what are we now, October, 11 months later, and we're already kind of coming out, we've already come out the other side of that. We've seen the titans of Wall Street look to pick up the carcasses, and I wouldn't be surprised if the buyers of FTX are one of those very reputable brokers, whether it be potentially a Fidelity. Robin Hood, yeah. someone like that. Um, and I think this is absolutely amazing and awesome for the industry because it just shows another legitimization of what's yeah. going on. What do you think
0: about the timing of, uh, you know, the BlackRock uh, ETF, you know, scooping up all those assets for their exchange-traded funds, potentially during that period of time. Pretty good timing, right?
1: Oh, look, great timing, right? Um, I mean. And that's where it gets really interesting. I don't know how much they need to seed the fund, whether it be 30, 40, $50 million. But yeah, there's a high chance yeah. they make quite a lot yeah. of money. Do you, think, of do you think
0: BlackRock would be, I, I haven't checked into this, but would they be one of the contenders to to scoop up FTX as well, do you think? They wouldn't go that
1: far. No. Uh, they, they don't own brokerages. Yeah. They're, they're a fun shop. Um, and so I kind of yeah, struggle yeah. to see them getting there. Yeah. Um, but they, yeah, there's yeah. just not much. Okay, well, I to hope,
0: mind. like, for for all those that lost money, like, I hope there's some sort of, resolution like there was a lot lost um through these platforms and through these exchanges and i guess if nothing else it just kind of reiterates the importance of if you're going to be holding bitcoin directly you really do need to get your custody situation sorted out so you do have to deal with a wallet situation or hopefully soon you'll be able to get a a spot etf we haven't really touched on this this time but we have before the fact that there's a futures etf bitos is is the one that i'm thinking of And it's just, it's not the same, right? Um, Can you just give us like a quick reason why a spot Bitcoin ETF is going to be better than a futures-based ETF if it gets approved?
1: Yeah. Because look, so unfortunately the transaction costs involved with futures, buying and selling futures are are pretty big, right? So they're kind of anywhere between 1% to 1.5%. And so if you're rolling your futures, so that means you buy a a future for one month forward and then you buy another one one month later, you're spending one, one and a bit percent every single time you do it. So that's what we call the roll costs. And what we've seen, we talked about this kind of almost two years ago when we launched and we said, actually, we think that the kind of this thing will trade underneath the Bitcoin price by anywhere between 10, 15% because of those roll costs. And unfortunately, that's what's happened. Uh, So it's a very expensive way to own crypto Um, and I think increasingly as this market normalizes and as we go okay rather than getting 200% returns on owning crypto you're kind of fighting for 10, 15, 20% returns all of a sudden everyone who used to say well who cares 10% cost is nothing or they said 5% cost is nothing or 2% or 1% it will get to that world where we're all going to start fighting for every half a percent which is a great news story because that that's means right. The industry
0: yeah, is and, and I guess that's kind of what we need. It's normalized and it has the opportunity to mature as well, which is good. Hard. Awesome. Well, we covered a lot of ground. I wasn't, I wasn't entirely sure that we could cover all that today, but
1: there's, and I think we're probably pretty close to a half hour yeah. too. So all I think right. well, let's, let's call
0: it a day and um, we'll, we'll try again next week and have another one. We'll
1: come back next week. I've got, I've already got the five or six stories in my mind next week and um, we'll we have lots there. We haven't touched on no. uh, the China stimulus yet or high rates and what is rates mean for increase. Yeah. There's a lot there. It's a great time to be um, That's right. obsessed with All markets. Right. Awesome. Right
0: now. All right. Well, thanks very much, Rupert. All right. Thanks, Darcy. See ya.
1: We'll speak next week.